we say, ah, oh, it's normal. It's, you know, haha, it's that time of the month. We joke about it. We commiserate about it. Instead, we should be grabbing each other by the shoulders, being like, oh my God, you have PMS this month? What are you doing? If you take anything away from this conversation today, it's that this whole narrative that like the cycle and women's hormones are this great mysterium, it's just nonsense. You should be leaning into your cycle as an important biomarker. Menstrual blood is not medical waste. It's not a waste product. It's stem cell rich fluid that has a huge amount of information about your health. If you want to be healthy in your fifth decade, you've got to be taking care of your cycle in your 20s. Welcome to Mother Podcast. I'm so excited to finally release the first season of the show and to kick it off with no one other than the mother and the legend behind the cycle syncing movement, Alisa Vitti. She's a hormone expert and she has completely redefined what the menstrual cycle means and how it actually relates to our overall health and longevity. She's the author of two best-selling books, Woman Code and In the Flow, and her company, Flow Living, has helped over half a million women around the world to improve their lives. So here she is talking about how she actually discovered that the female body has a unique rhythm. Enjoy. It was a number of years ago now where I was asking a question, why is it that 80% of women struggle with a hormonal problem at some point in her lifetime? Why? And men, it's not even in the same galaxy. What is the missing piece? What's our big blind spot? What are we overlooking? What are we disrupting at such a fundamental level that so many of us are having these issues? Because arguably, we're all exposed to the same circadian disruption. We're all exposed to the same endocrine disruptive chemicals. We're all exposed to the same amount of stress. So what is it that we're getting so wrong? And this led me to uncover a biological rhythm that we had not really been looking at as a society, which is the infradian rhythm. And this is the rhythm that governs the menstrual cycle. But just like it's too simplistic to say, that the circadian rhythm only governs your sleep-wake cycle. We now know it governs the timing of many actions in the body. That it's also too simplistic to say the infradian rhythm is only responsible for the timing of your menstrual cycle because it actually affects major systems of the body from your brain function to metabolic rate to your stress response, your immune response as women. And this infradian clock is active from your first bleed to your last and governs a good four decades of your existence. But because we didn't know about it, we inadvertently have been disrupting this infradian clock forever. And this is why women fundamentally, compared to men, are having a greater disruption in their hormones overall. So when I've discovered this, I thought what's simply needed here is a method to support this infradian clock because we have routines and rituals that we know are essential to support our circadian clock, but we lacked that for this infradian clock. And so that's how I began to build out the cycle syncing method, which I invented and is the basis of the second book that I wrote, this just really outlining what the infradian rhythm is, how it impacts these key systems of the body how our cycle patterns work, and how to start really supporting them in a deep way. And that book is called In the Flow. And the idea behind cycle syncing is that we have these four distinct hormonal phases, follicular, ovulatory, luteal, and menstrual, and that we need to modulate our caloric intake, our food type, our workout intensity, our workout type, 
and even play to our cognitive strengths to reduce overall stress throughout these four phases in distinct ways. And it becomes a ritual and a routine. I think it's just so important that we really understand that this is something that we all have to be taking seriously. While you have a cycle, you have to take care of it. And we also have to understand that if we are consuming information, articles in the media, looking at research, that we have to really be rigorous around deeply questioning who were the studies done on, because that was the other frustrating thing that I uncovered in researching for the book, is that so many things that women have been trying, from keto diets to HIIT workouts, whatever these alleged gold standards are, the next trend, all of those things have really pretty much been studied exclusively on men and sometimes include postmenopausal women because, oh, they don't have a cycle and therefore it's less complicated, air quotes, to put them into the research. That's just not acceptable or scientifically accurate. And I think we can do better. We should do better. And anyone who's in research, I think funding should really be separately earmarked to make sure that there's enough funding going to specifically looking at these distinctions. And can you talk about, so you mentioned that women's hormones are disrupted in a, at a larger scale than, than men experience hormone disruptions. Can you just like paint the picture of the current status quo, so to speak? How often do women experience hormone imbalances in their life? Are women overall healthy hormonally? What's the, what do the numbers tell us right now? Sadly, it's just getting worse. We have an environment that is increasingly endocrine disruptive from a chemical point of view, microplastics, xenoestrogens, pesticides in the food supply. And depending on which country you live in, that's slightly worse or slightly better. And then from a stress point of view, when we look at conversations that like Eve Rodsky is having with her book, Fair Play, and just a mental load that women take as caretakers, this is an incredible amount of stress. And why is stress such a problem? Stress impacts the adrenal conversation, the cortisol, the demand for cortisol production. And anytime we have a an increase in cortisol production, that has to come from a hormone called pregnenolone. Pregnenolone is, is something that subdivides into cortisol and progesterone. But if there's an increased demand for cortisol repeatedly, constantly, then it's going to deprioritize what is supposed to be siphoned off for the progesterone production. And it's going to give that back to make more of this cortisol. So stress is a big problem. And we see the overall impact of that in terms of the aging process from a hormonal point of view for women Women are going through perimenopause much sooner than our historic counterparts. Think back to when the birth control pill was introduced. Married women were having their seventh or eighth child at 48, wow. right? This was a whole different reality in terms of cycle health that women today are not even able to conceive at wow. 38. And it has to do with progesterone levels and the impact of stress. There's this that's taking place. There's irregularities in the cycle. Then, of course, there's all the unstudied long-term exposure to birth control pills, how that's affecting our cognitive development, how it's affecting our overall 
ovarian longevity. So it's really not easy for ovaries out there. And from a statistical point of view, you know, you have increasing rates with PCOS, increasing rates of endometriosis, increasing rates of idiopathic infertility. It's not getting better. It's not. This environment that we're in that is fundamentally endocrine disruptive is negatively impacting all humans. Absolutely. And what is the domino effect of our hormone, yeah, lack of health or these disruptions and our hormone health basically going down. How does that influence, at least for women, how does that influence the rest of our health, our brain health, our immune health, our aging? Can you talk about some examples as to how hormone disruptions and imbalances actually go beyond reproductive health and our ability to conceive? Your hormones are really the stuff of life, right? In the sense that it gives you the energy, the creativity, the zest. It's like this, it nurtures your energy in a way that I don't think we really appreciate properly because, and far too often, women only appreciate this when they start going through their perimenopausal, their very late stage perimenopausal experience where they start to experience what happens when they are estrogen deprived? What happens when they're progesterone deprived? What happens when you're testosterone deprived? You don't feel like the young, healthy, vibrant self that you want to feel like. And aging really can be looked at as a whole as the slow decline in producing hormones, right? So it's very much a part of our longevity conversation. And we see that in the biohacking community where people are injecting hormones and taking bioidentical hormones and all of which the idea is to slow down the aging process. Everyone in Hollywood, arguably, that looks like they haven't aged a day, there's a reason for that. They're doing things to manipulate the outcome. It's not just facials and massage and exercise, right? It goes beyond, if it's not a weight loss conversation, there's human growth hormone and there's bioidentical hormone replacement. So there's a lot that people are doing to manipulate the process. But Hormonal imbalances, let's say, for example, let's say you have just what most women experience and believe is as normal, like PMS. Okay. We all agree that PMS is part of a female experience. Now, we agree with that because we're being given the wrong information. So let's, I'll correct that in a second, but let's just start with, okay, you have PMS. So what's the big deal? Everybody suffers from that. What's the long-term knock-on effect? In fact, about 15 years ago, there was an important study that was done called the BioCycle Study. And this looked at what happens if you have PMS that's left untreated. What could the possible long-term effect of that be? Turns out it's pretty significant. It increases anywhere from two to four times the rate at which you are going to develop the four big diseases of inflammation postmenopausally. So those are diabetes, dementia, heart disease, and cancer. So untreated PMS for your entire reproductive lifespan puts you at dramatically increased risk of serious health problems postmenopausally. And why? Well, this is what we need to understand so that we understand that PMS should be something you take really seriously. When you have PMS, it indicates that in your luteal phase, which is the longest phase of the cycle, it's 10 to 12 days, and it's the, those days that lead up to the first day of your bleed, this is the phase of the cycle where the body is producing progesterone and banking some for the next cycle. And in the situation with PMS, your body does not make enough progesterone. So you have an inverted ratio. You have too much estrogen and not enough progesterone for this 10 to 12 day period of time when what is normal 
is for you to have a lot more progesterone than estrogen. And this is important because this excess estrogen is really what's behind the short term. Every symptom that you have from a PMS perspective is driven by this inverted ratio of excess estrogen to progesterone. So your bloating, your acne, your mood swings, your fatigue, your brain fog, all of that comes out of this problem of excess estrogen. And then long term, the monthly overexposure to this hormone, and keeping in mind there's three different types of estrogen and depending on your body's particular manufacturing process of which ones you're going to be making more of, and then of course how your body breaks them down, you can be exposed to the type of estrogen that is inflammatory and that can over time push your greater risk for things. So it's really important for any woman who's dealing with PMS to see that as an indication that something is wrong with her hormones and that she needs to take immediate action. And that action is not to go on birth control because, and that's the other thing that I think is also another thing that we have to understand that whatever is going on with your cycle, whether it be PCOS, endometriosis, fibroids, PMS, whatever, what heavy bleeding, right? The solution that we're all presented with is to shut off our hormones via this hormone suppression, hormone replacement, if you will, which we call the pill, right? Or the implant or the ring or whatever, you know, you're doing the IUD. But all of that, what that does is it shuts off your body's innate hormone production completely, right? And then you replace it every day with synthetic forms of these hormones. You're not actually cycling. You're suppressing this infradian clock you lose a lot of benefits from a cognitive point of view, from a muscle development point of view, from a bone density protection point of view, from a cardiovascular health point of view, gut disruptions take place. It's vast to the implications being on this medication. And we don't appreciate that. We don't understand it. We don't, we're not told this information. We just say, oh, this must be the thing to take. Everybody's taking it for fixing these problems. I'm specifically speaking about fixing hormone problems. This is not the optimal solution to fix hormone problems. If you want to take it to prevent pregnancy, that's your call. But you do need to be aware of how to biohack and and manage being on this type of uh, hormone suppression so that you can protect yourself. But if you're using it to deal with any number of hormone issues that we've been discussing, it's not the best way forward. It really isn't. We know, in fact, study after study talks about how food and supplementation, specific doses of micronutrients, things like inositol, for example, with or berberine for PCOS, other things like immune modulators for women with endometriosis, things that help the body break down excess estrogen for women with heavy bleeding and PMS. It's very approachable from a macro and micronutrient therapeutic perspective. And one of the things that I've been doing for 20 years is codifying these protocols and making them widely accessible through Flow Living, which is the company that I've built to help women navigate these hormonal issues so that it's not something that is only accessible to women who can afford super high-end functional medicine and, and all of that, which is out of reach for the everyday person still. And so It's exciting to be able to help women understand that there's so much more that you can do that you have personal agency over. And I'm very proud we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. We've been been a femtech company before the 
femtech was a word and before telehealth was even a concept. So, you know, for me, this is just wonderful to see how much is happening in this space now. But I think the other thing to keep in mind with using this medication to deal with your hormone issues is that you're missing out on ovulation every month. Ovulation is this wonderful event that takes place inside your menstrual cycle that is helping you bank your or protect your brain, your bone, and your heart health today, but also to bank that health for when you are no longer ovulating postmenopausally. And so when we look at there should be more studies being done to correlate women who are dealing with osteopenia, osteoporosis, postmenopausally who need to be on medication for that. Were they on birth control for two to three decades of their life during their reproductive years where they missed out on ovulation for all that time? It, there's no going back. You can't go back and have that monthly thing happen. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that the hormone suppression affects you cognitively really dramatically. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about that, I, I I always recommend Dr. Sarah Hill's book, Your Brain on Birth Control, just so that you can appreciate the massive implications this is having on you as a as a creative person. You are not cycling, and then you're also you're not you do not have the sort of let's say full dose of the useful hormones you should be having at that age and stage of your life. So you're in this like hormonal no man's land. You're not exactly at levels that are postmenopausal, but you're pseudo perimenopausal. I mean, it's not a great hormonal profile to be in. And the other thing is with the rise of femtech, if you're really just using it to prevent pregnancy, the wonderful thing is there are amazing female founders who have built extremely sensitive devices where you can know with precision when you are ovulating. And the egg is only viable for 48 hours and sperm can only live in the body for five days. So you need to be covered for seven total days out of the month that happen to be consecutive with an additional barrier method. Other than that, the rest of the month, you do not need to use this older technology of suppressing your hormones every single day when we really only need coverage for seven days, right? So there's so much to consider when it comes to this that yeah. I think we should be talking a lot more about. Yeah. And I think, yeah, also the, in terms of birth control, I think the key, one of the key things that you said is that old technology, there's got to be something better to address the needs that birth control has traditionally been addressing, especially when it comes to hormones. I actually, what you said just blew my mind because it's maybe I understood it, but I don't think I've ever thought of it that way, is that having chronic PMS and having having chronic PMS or having hormonal imbalances or some kind of disruption in your menstrual cycle throughout life puts you at a high risk of all the age-related conditions that actually make us live shorter and decrease our quality of life later in life. So it's not just about reproductive health. So our period is a health sign for longevity. That's incredible. That's something that makes it important now that makes longevity important now, not just when we're 40, 50, or, or 60 for women. That's fascinating. In fact, I think it was back in, let's say, 2015, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists decreed that the cycle now must be considered a fifth vital sign. So, you know, like when you go to the emergency room, they take your blood pressure and your temperature and these other four vital signs that we have. And we now are supposed to be considering the cycle as important as your temperature, as important as your blood pressure. The challenge, of course, is that while we have an easy tool to measure blood pressure and temperature, 
we don't have an easy tool to help us evaluate our cycle health the way that we need. And beyond just evaluating the health of it or the status of it, we also are lacking a clear set of guidelines as to what to do in certain situations. For example, if your temperature is elevated, there is a cultural narrative that you know without even second guessing it that there are certain things you should do to try to alleviate an elevated temperature in your body, that you should take that seriously and that you should be on top of that immediately. Same thing with blood pressure, right? But with your cycle, because of this silly cultural narrative that we have that has roots that are questionable, we say, oh, it's normal. So, you know, haha, it's that time of the month. We joke about it. We commiserate about it. Instead, we should be grabbing each other by the shoulders, being like, mm. oh my God, you have PMS this month? What are you doing? H how are you getting on top of that? Are you okay? Mm. Can I do anything to help you? Like you would to somebody who had a fever. Oh my gosh, yeah. what are you doing for that? <laughs> Stay home today. What what can I do to help you? We should be, I think, yes, there's a lot that can be done from the top down from a cultural narrative shift that I know so many of us are working on, but it also can come from the sort of community as a whole. Women can start talking to each other in a very different way and really flagging for each other. Hey, you should be on, you should be dealing with that. That's not something to joke about. I care about you and there's research that shows that this is important and, oh, this thing, we're supposed to be taking it seriously. Okay. What are you going to do about your PMS, right? What are you going to do about your PCOS? How are you going to help that heavy bleeding you have every month? All of these things today create health issues today, decrease quality of life today, but also have far-reaching implications in terms of your future fertility, how you go through perimenopause, how quickly and early you will go through that. And we know from Dr. Lisa Moscone's work that the more you menstruate, the more you have access to your healthy, youthful levels of estrogen, that this is pr brain protective, right? And we want to slow down the aging process. It's not something that you just want to start talking about when you're 50, right? If you want to be healthy in your fifth decade, you've got to be taking care of your cycle in your 20s. Amazing. I love that. And what would be like the biomarkers? Like, let's say I wanted to assess my fifth vital sign and I wanted to assess how my, my cycle is doing. What would I want to look at? What biomarkers am I looking at? Is it my hormone levels? Is it whether I'm PMSing? Am I looking for like my insulin, stress levels? Like what would be the perfect panel of like tests or biomarkers that could give me a good indication of whether I'm doing well? First and foremost, the static blood draw is a challenge because we need to assess the dynamic pattern that takes place over the course of a month. And so testing only out of on one day in one phase of the cycle, it's very directional. When you look at the lab values, it's like, well, this is sort of directionally correct, but it's not really giving you an accurate read. Sometimes it can be useful when you're trying to pinpoint a problem, let's say in a specific phase. Is your ovulatory phase too short? Is that why your egg isn't developing fully when you're trying to conceive? Is your luteal phase, you know, having progesterone insufficiency? So I think you have to be a lot more intentional about when we're doing blood draw and why, as opposed to sort of this blanket, we prefer to do blood draw on day three. That, But that's not necessarily as nuanced as I think it could be. So I like better as a place to start for the everyday person. If we're talking about biomarkers, that's almost like we're in the biohacking conversation. So for the everyday person, I think really looking at basal body temperature is a very easy, 
first place to start because what you're going to see there are the temperature changes associated with the changing ratios of estrogen and progesterone throughout the different phases of the cycle, which will give you a really good first view into what is the status of my cycle health as a whole. So I really like that. I also think urinalysis can be really helpful if you do it throughout the month. So I know that there are companies like Mira and Prove where you can do urine testing at home throughout twice. I would do it like twice each phase of the cycle to get a good sort of chart going to see where you're at. And then the third thing that you can observe are your symptoms, right? What observational symptoms can you identify? In fact, this is not to be taken lightly. Just to give you perspective, every single woman who is treated with hormone replacement therapy in from a menopausal conversation uh, perspective is prescribed that medication based on her own self-reported symptoms, right? Because it is true that you can have hot flashes, but be within normal range of a lab value. It is true that you can have symptoms, but have all your hormone panels come back normal. This is true in your menopause years. This is true in perimenopause. This is true in your reproductive years. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a conversation with a woman over the past 20-something years where she's like, I've tested my hormones. They're all within normal range, but I'm still having all these problems. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to look at the dynamic pattern. Where is the cycle having some issue as opposed to just always looking within these lab ranges, which are not necessarily giving women the guidance that they need. So looking at your self-reported symptoms, how do you feel during ovulation? This is one of the things that women love about the MyFlow app that we built, Mm -hmm. which helps you really identify where are you having problems? Are you having specific types of symptoms during ovulation that would indicate an issue with your ability to metabolize estrogen, right? So we pair your symptoms with a functional medicine explanation to help you understand what could be going on so that you can learn what is really happening. Similarly, in the luteal phase, are what is the PMS situation for you? Anything about that, the degree of symptom severity that you have is really indicative of the problem with that estrogen progesterone conversation. And then I would look at a fourth level, and of course, a little famous for this because I'm the first human being to go on national television to simulate menstrual blood. I did that back in 2013 on the Dr. Oz show, and I used fruit juices to really just help women visualize the four different color patterns that your cycle could be. Because every month you get this hugely valuable biomarker literally coming out of your body every month. Menstrual blood is not a waste. In fact, I think today the FDA gave clearance to um, the Kvin pad, which is the first FDA approved menstrual pad that evaluates your menstrual blood. And it's a huge win because it really puts the reality out there that menstrual blood is not medical waste. It's not a waste product. It's stem cell rich fluid that has a huge amount of information about your health. And it's just so exciting to see the different things that are happening for women to be able to harness that information. But before you get your access to these special pads, what you can do is just look at the color of the bleed. And you can go to the Flow Living website and do the evaluation that's going to help you identify what the color of your bleed is. You can also do this in the MyFlow app. 
and it will tell you what that means. Do you have enough progesterone? Are you excess in your estrogen? Are you insufficient with estrogen? Where are you with this hormonal situation? Because the colors are finite in terms of what they could potentially be. And the reasons why they would be that way are also knowable, right? It's that's, I think if you take anything away from this conversation today, it's that this whole narrative that like the cycle and women's hormones are this great mysterium that can be never, un, you know, it's unknowable. For, I mean, it's just nonsense. And we're getting more and more insights and accuracy and tech to support us every single day. And it's just really thrilling, especially for somebody like me who loves your period more than anybody on the planet, to see all of this coming to birth. It's just amazing. So as far as some of the other things that you mentioned, once you've identified that you have an issue by observing your basal body temperature, by observing your symptoms, by observing your cycle bleed color, then you could go and do some further testing to see what could be at the root cause of that. Right. At the same time, there are also specific, pretty universal reasons why your cycle hormones get disrupted. And this was the basis of my first book called Woman Code. And it's this protocol that I sort of evolved to deal with my own PCOS and really looking at what disrupts the endocrine system as a whole and what do we have to do and in what order to sort of reboot our endocrine operating system to help it function optimally. And that's the basis of the flow protocol that we've been using now for over two decades, very successfully to help women naturally deal with all of these issues, oh, whether it be PCOS or PMS or fibroids or endometriosis, uh, ovarian cysts, idiopathic infertility. It comes down to the fact that once you identify that there's a problem, we need to backtrack into how the endocrine system needs to be supported. And that always comes down to blood sugar support, adrenal support, right? Making sure that we're having an appropriate cortisol balancing conversation, and then estrogen metabolism and the gut, right? And once we do these things in the correct order, right? For example, do not just, if you say, oh, I have PMS, I have excess estrogen, let me do a detox. That's not the first place to start. In fact, can make your blood glucose levels more unstable, which would throw up ovulation and make this whole progesterone issue worse and make your PMS worse. There is a sequence. The sequence is important. And that's, again, something that we do every day at Full Living for women who need that kind of help. So feel free to reach out if you're struggling. I have to say your app, your resources, your books is pro- are probably like my most gifted or recommended solution to just my girlfriends, to just like women that have real life questions about their periods, about their fertility, about their health, or anyone that wants to start leaning into their cycle. And, and I tell them, oh, did you know that everything from your brain chemistry and your energy levels and your caloric intake fluctuates throughout the month. And they're like, what? I've never heard about that. And I'm like, let me send you this. (laughs) Let me recommend you this book. And I truly mean this, your resources I find are probably the most comprehensive across the boards for women on the internet when it comes to kind of managing your cycle and your wellness. Because if you're trying to find anything in the category of wellness or whether you call it biohacking, there's so much stuff on the internet now from ice baths to intermittent fasting to weightlifting. And it's so hard to make sense genuinely as to what's going to have a a positive effect on your health or what's going to actually have a detrimental effect on your health. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the current biohacking trends that are flow living approved 
and which ones <laughs> would you really caution against? I think first and foremost, whenever you hear anyone speaking in platitudes, like for example, I'm not going to name names, but there were some well-known biohacking podcasters who came out to say that melatonin is bad for everyone. It's bad to take. And this had a, a trickle-down effect. It was popping up on articles on Mind Body Green and Well and Good. And it's like, oh no, melatonin is bad. That, that conversation, that style of, of a blanket statement is something you should always immediately react in a very cautious manner too. Because first and foremost, it implies that there was gender bias in the research, right? To say that there's this is universally true would require the research to have been done on both genders. And we know that's not happening, right? And a lot of times, this bias oftentimes is not malicious. It's just really through the lens of the person who's interested in their own biohacking conversation. And the biohacking conversation is still predominantly male. So to say something like that is really problematic because for women, for example, with melatonin, part of the what happens in perimenopause, which so many of us don't even understand what is exactly happening. What's happening is the pituitary gland slowly over about a 15-year period of time, right, starts making more and more follicular stimulating hormone till it reaches a threshold and a, a, a concentration in your blood that shuts down the ovulation process. That is really what's happening with, let's say, on a structural level, this elevation in FSH, and then we stop the ovulation in the ovary. The other things that are happening is that the regular rhythmic pulse of estrogen that you get during the cycle, during the reproductive years, becomes very erratic, which can have a lot of side effects and symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, et cetera. And that this specifically, melatonin production drops precipitously during perimenopause. And this also serves to suppress ovulation. In the late 90s, when well, the early 90s, when IVF was being developed in Italy primarily, there was a researcher who was looking at natural means, micronutrient therapy, to help restart ovulation to support the IVF process. And one of the things that he discovered was that by giving very low doses of melatonin alongside some two other micronutrients, he was able to restart ovulation in women who were postmenopausal. Melatonin is incredibly important as a tool for women to be using as they go through perimenopause. And to have something that's out there in the biohacking conversation, scaring women because people with the louder voice are saying it's not good to take. It's true. It's not necessarily good to take if you have testosterone production as a goal, if you're male. But if you're female and you're talking about preserving the longevity of your ovarian function as a means to biohack the aging process, then I would argue that melatonin is an important tool to consider. So that's just one example of a bigger conversation of how do we have a more gender forward narrative where we're saying this information is useful for men and this information is not useful for women who are in their reproductive years, you know, where we have to be a little bit more nuanced and out and really outspoken about who this is useful for. I think that's the first thing is just at the highest level, be very cautious about how you consume information, because then if you're always putting it through the lens of trying to understand, okay, I'm curious about this. Let me look at the source studies that were cited 
and let me see what gender was actually being studied and is this applicable for me? Then you'll never be led astray. And that's my most important thing that I love to teach every woman, which is learn how to do your own research because then you're always going to be driving the ship in the right direction. And then I would say some other things, you know, like the ice baths and the zone two training and all the fun things that are being discussed now. First and foremost, I just like to always keep it really real, right? Let me, I understand that people want to get into the ice baths every day, but as a menstruating person, let me just ask you, do you feel intuitively that you should put your body in something that temperature when you're bleeding, when the menstruation is actually happening? Does that intuitively feel like something you want to do? And I would argue that our biological drivers, the things that we find ourselves interested in, because although we think we're so free thinking, you know, we have a lot of chemicals at play that give us these preferences, even for our hunger, what we're interested in eating. So if you don't have the desire to do it, I would argue that there's probably not a good reason to be doing it during the bleeding phase. But also when we look at this through the lens of, let's say, basal body temperature, when we look at it through the lens of traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, ancient systems of helping us understand and navigate what's appropriate for the body, doing cold things during the second, that sort of menstruating phase of the cycle is really contraindicated, right? It's the opposite. You like want to do warming things. Mm. <laughs> and the cycle thinking method factors this in. So you'll notice when you go through the app, you'll see, oh, actually, you're going to be recommended to eat certain warming foods during the menstrual phase to help offset the reality that your body's actually slightly cooler when you're bleeding and you need to address that. I think it's use some of these things. Would I do an ice bath during ovulation? If I was ever going to do it, <laughs> I would do it then because all that estrogen is certainly something that makes the body a little bit warmer. And I think that would be a safe time to do it. I think when you're thinking about even doing fasting, you have to factor in which phase of the cycle you're in to tolerate fasting. You can tolerate longer fasts during the first half of the cycle, the follicular and ovulatory phases of the cycle. Metabolic rate is slower. Resting cortisol levels are lower. So you can sustain fewer calories without any negative impact on blood glucose levels, insulin levels, cortisol levels during that time. I would 100% not advise it post-ovulation. Mm. You need, and this is what I wrote about in, in the flow, you need 279 more calories per day in the luteal phase. Restricting calories at this time is bad for you, period, pun intended. Don't do it. Eat more, stabilize your blood sugar, protect your progesterone levels. I know there are good there's a lot of conversation with male biohackers talking about the glories of restricted eating. And if you are male or postmenopausal, all the gifts are there to be had and you should pursue it. But in your reproductive years, it's not something that you should be seeking as a gold standard of self-care for yourself. There's so many things. I think it's just put it through the lens of what age and stage of your life are you in? What are your goals? What is needed? You don't. And then I think also just, I always like to back up and say, and I think I dedicated a chapter to this in the book, the female body is so incredibly powerful and efficient. Less is more when it comes to taking care of yourself. As long as you're supporting your cyclical patterns, you're good. You know what I mean? You, you really can start to have the health 
and the the level of energy and the mental clarity and the mood stabilization that you were designed to have. It's all the things that you're doing to quote unquote biohack a circadian only physiology, which you do not have, Mm. that is causing you to have this suboptimal performance cognitively, metabolically, stress response wise, immunologically, sex libido. I mean, 68% of women are sexually unsatisfied simply because they don't appreciate where their libido shifts throughout the cycle and what they need to do to quote unquote biohack their orgasm. Mm. So if you can really start to synchronize your self-care with your cycle, you're going to find that you're less interested in these extreme things. And then you can revisit them when you're postmenopausal because then you're back to a circadian only clock and you'll get a lot of benefit from the things that are in the conversation that are really focused on male optimization. I love that. I love that it's really coming back home to our cycle ultimately rather than going into different extremes and optimizing and yeah, which just sounds more like a male version of biohacking or wellness. I also wanted to ask you, so you've you've now have helped thousands of women through flow. Hundreds of thousands. (laughs) You now have helped hundreds of thousands of women to balance their hormones and come back home to their cycles through flow living. And I wanted to ask you, are there certain patterns, certain things that you, certain mistakes that you see women make again and again that maybe is useful to bring up? And are there certain universal tips or super important wellness techniques or decisions that you find yourself very often through flow living or otherwise recommending to women? Yeah. I mean, so many fun things. I think I always like to start with the most controversial one, which is coffee. Uh, I've written a very well-read blog article on this, which you can find on the Flow Living site, which I think is titled, Why Women Should Reconsider Their Cup of Coffee. And I go into great detail and put all the studies in there to really help you understand that for women, caffeine can be, especially on an empty stomach first thing in the morning as part of a biohacking routine is really disruptive for your hormones overall. And without spending 20 minutes going into the details, what I can say is there are 50% of the population does not, has a gene variation that prevents them from metabolizing caffeine properly. And then what happens when you are one of these people who are, again, 50% of the population, male or female, When you struggle with this caffeine metabolism, you end up with caffeine toxicity, which you can look up on the Mayo Clinic just to read these symptoms because so many people read it for the first time and say, oh my God, this happens to me all day long. And I just thought I had anxiety or I thought I was having an issue, some other issue. But it's really that you're not breaking down caffeine. And to start your day off with something that's so disruptive to blood sugar, to cortisol levels has a huge long-term effect in terms of how you absorb nutrients, metabolize things throughout the day, how your body is going to be manufacturing your hormones daily, weekly, monthly throughout the cycle. So it's it's one of those very popular cultural things that we're doing and it's not good for women for sure. So having a real breakfast within 30 minutes of waking up is really important. It should be protein and fiber forward. There should be some fat and some carbohydrates. It should be very balanced. And you can figure out by using, here's a biohack I do love. I think everyone should do this for about a month just to get a feel for how they react to food. Wear a continuous glucose monitor for a month. Track 
How do you respond to certain macronutrient combinations? Are you someone who can have rice and beans at the same time? Or can you only have the beans and only a certain amount, right? Learn your response to carbohydrates and start to craft meals for you throughout the day that keep your blood sugar very stable. The goal for if you really want to make the biggest or you want to use the biggest lever that you have to promote hormonal health overall is keeping blood sugar stable all day long, every day. That does mean that in the second half of your cycle, you're eating more calories, right? And so wearing a CGM can just help you see the black and white of that as opposed to, unfortunately, how so many women have been conditioned, again, because of the gender bias in research, that assumption that women are smaller men with slightly more sluggish metabolisms who need to restrict calories more and work out more to compensate for their lack of testicles that this is something that you need to jettison from your operating system. You need to not buy into that. You have a perfectly fantastic metabolism. It just works differently. And you do need to change your calorie intakes throughout the day. And you don't need to restrict more. There's nothing, you're not trying to compete with the male metabolism. You're just trying to optimize your own. And so you have to learn your body's response to food and you need to keep your blood sugar stable throughout the day and throughout the month. And I think that's a really great biohack to do, one that I do love. Another thing that I think women do that's really problematic is not take seriously their endocrine disruptor exposure. You need to do a sweep through your product suites, your hair care, your skin care, your makeup, your clothing, all the stuff about fast fashion and the carcinogens that are contained in these clothes. Anything that has artificial fragrance, anytime you read on the back of any bottle, any product, just the word fragrance, don't buy it or throw it out. You have to really do your best to protect your own internal environment because the external environment is polluted from an endocrine disruptive point of view. So be vigilant in your own home and on your own body to protect against endocrine disruption as much as possible because you can be doing all the right things with food, but if you're piling on the chemicals, it's really not going to allow you to really thrive the way that you really want to. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, I've also been very curious to ask you what your take is. How do you think artificial intelligence might be shaping the future of female wellness, biohacking, hormone health? Do you see AI playing a big role in making it easier for women to stay on top of their cycle health? I'm an optimist, and I would like to say that any new technology is going to be beneficial, and I think that history does typically prove that to be true. So I'd like to say that's more than likely the case, although I'm sure that has yet to be fully explored. But what my concerns are about this is that AI is fed by humans as of right now, and the computers have, even if you just think about the way that we've built computing, short-term memory, long-term memory, we have personified or we've displaced human tendencies onto the machine to be have it be something that we can relate to, right? And AI conversations, whatever's being fed into ChatGPT or whatever, is going to pick up all the gender bias that currently exists in this conversation. And the lack, I think it's only going to serve at first to amplify the current problem, which is there's not enough research, there's not enough funding going to research to solve this gender bias issue. And so the information that's coming out could really be just putting a picture frame around that even more so for women. So in a sense, it might 
prove to be beneficial in the short term because it will help heighten our awareness of this essential problem. And then might it might help us figure out ways to solve for that problem. So I'm hopeful, mm-hmm. but I think it, there's a big fundamental hurdle to get through, which is the problem that we still currently have that we've created as humans, which is we've made some decision based on a bias that women should not be included in research and that we need to solve for immediately. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then aside of technology in general, what is your vision? What is your end goal for healthcare for women? Like, where do you want to see it? What do you want to accomplish with all the work that you do? What do you want to see change? What's like your perfect picture that you hope to leave women with? I think we've, I've been on the same mission for a long time. And so I think it's just continuing on that mission, which is to build the ultimate way for women to really understand what their hormones are doing and to fix them when they're off and to have that be something that works for them throughout their life cycle. That to me is what we need. And that's what we're working on. Stay tuned to all the fun things we're launching. We're a couple of weeks away from launching something new right now. So it's really an exciting time. And, and I think in general, Beyond what we're focusing on, what I think is so wonderful about what's happening right now in the femtech conversation is all this innovation, is all this attention on the subject, is all of the potential for things to really shift in a historic way. I really can't underscore enough the historic nature of every one of these femtech entrepreneurs who are navigating complex legal and medical and cultural situations (laughs) to bring forward new technology that puts women in the driver's seat of their health in a way that has never happened before. I mean, it is not very long ago that you couldn't just get access to birth control, for God's sakes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or you'd be judged based on what age you were trying to ask. It's just, it's crazy to think back just 50, 60 years ago, what the narrative was. So we've come a long way and I just am so inspired and thrilled to see what's happening because there's no going back. I think what's happening as a whole where there's this collective of companies and entrepreneurs is that it's really going to just serve to be gathering momentum, changing the narrative around the globe and making women's lives a lot better on the day-to-day level, navigating these hormonal issues. And also even in the more extreme, there's just the technology innovation is just incredible. Absolutely. It's buzzing. It feels exciting. I wonder if maybe 50 or 100 years from now, people would look back at this time when so many people were starting the movement and starting to change the paradigms and starting to kind of plant the seeds for hopefully something that's going to become complete norm in the future. Like understanding your cycle will be complete norm. It wouldn't be something, cycle syncing wouldn't be something that you'd have to explain to anybody, just like you wouldn't have to explain somebody that it's important to measure your... To go to bed at night, exactly. to brush your teeth. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what's next for Flow Living? What are you working on? What are you excited about? So by the time you're listening to this podcast, we will have just launched our brand new expanded cycle syncing feature within the MyFlow app, which is an incredible tool that's making cycle syncing even easier for women. So you'll be getting recipes. You can select like what you have in your pantry and it'll generate recipes for you. There's workout videos with a partnership that we have with Obey Fitness that are all 
geared towards your cycle phases. There's the productivity hacking that we're helping you with your schedule. So all of this is tailored to your particular cycle phase and it's from the mother of the movement. So of course, it's going to be the best content you can get on the subject. Amazing. I'm really excited. I'm a big fan and a user of Flow Living, so I'll be tuning into that for sure. I have a philosophical question I wanted to ask you. Mm. What do you think maybe bigger lessons we're learning or you're learning from studying the female cycle and this and our beautiful biology? Can it teach humanity something beyond our own health? Yes. <laughs> yes. I love that question. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for asking it. The beautiful thing about the cycle is that it's dynamic and that its power comes from its mutability. And I think that when we look at the world through the lens that we currently have that is more male-oriented, power is defined in a more static way. Strength is being the same all the time, producing at the same rate, functioning at the same level all the time. The sameness is equated to strength and power and success. And that doesn't really resonate when you have a dynamic cycle because you feel different, you are changing. And when we look at the obvious comparison, right, of the seasons of the year, and the, the phases of the cycle, right? It's hard to fully accept that the only definition of strength and power and success is sameness when there's so much potency in the dynamic seasonal pattern for growing crops, for producing life on this planet, for example. No big deal. And so the, I think there's an opportunity to redefine this idea of strength and power and success through a female lens and one that is embracing change, one that is embracing dynamism and mutability, not as a liability, which is the, the narrative that we're fed, but one that is really a superpower. And that's certainly something that I've been shouting from the rooftops for a long time. But it's not just me. There's a wonderful book put out by two PhDs that I happened to run into at TED Women years ago, fully a decade ago now. And their book is called The Athena Doctrine. Highly recommend everyone to read this book. In it, they cite study after study looking at the geopolitical impact, economic impact of countries that are operating with a more feminine energy premise, if you will, and one that, let's say, is more inclusive of change and community orientation and collaboration and, and all of that. And they found that, simply put, the countries that are utilizing this practice more are more successful, are healthier as a population, are more economically stable. It's fascinating research. So I think on the individual level, it can be liberating for a woman or a person who is cycling to understand that there is nothing to try to suppress in order to be the best version of yourself. In fact, it's the opposite. Embrace this dynamic energy and your changing nature because that's going to bring you the most joy and certainly the least amount of impact on your health. But I think societally, just having a broader conversation of what productivity and success and strength look like could have 
vast geopolitical and economic impacts on the way that we're moving forward. And I think that is no more prescient than right now as we are entering this new AI age, which will have vast sweeping societal changes that occur as a result of the influence of this on our culture and our work lives to embrace a more human form of productivity, which is more dynamic and less of a machine version of productivity, which is that static version, could also be a way forward for us as a society to navigate what's us and what's machine as we move forward. So on so many levels, do I think the conversation around the cycle and the learnings from it are a valuable addition to the narratives that are evolving. I love that so much. Honestly, and it's probably the biggest takeaway that has been for me personally from all of your work and everything that I've followed you say and in all of the interviews and all of the articles and Flow Living as well is that it's ultimately through learning about my cycle, through learning to slow down when necessary throughout the month or throughout life, you're actually learning to recondition or decondition yourself from that programming of hustle and productivity. And like you're saying, this nine to five or now nine to eight daily regime for success and productivity and achievement. And ultimately, when you start thinking about rethinking about that on an individual level, you also start thinking about that philosophically and in general for community and humanity. And I really hope that what's happening now with femtech and this revolution we're we're having and this awakening women are having. It's like a renaissance. It really feels like one. I don't know. It does. That, that we are going to go into that place that you're describing that is as a result more sustainable for like population and countries and more wholesome and healthy long term. It feels possible. I can't imagine anything but. The arc of history just always keeps <clears throat> moving us forward. So I hope that we continue to make great progress, especially on the front of, of Thank women. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything that you do. Truly, you've been one of my personal biggest inspirations in women's health and in femtech. I'm sure there's many entrepreneurs that share that and really appreciate your time. And please do stay in touch. And I will include all of the links in the show notes to Flow Living and various various topics that we mentioned during the podcast. Thank you. I know you asked a lot today about like legacy and I have to say, I feel like it's really an honor to have been impacting so many people for a long time. I take it really seriously. I'm so thrilled that people have taken some of my research and have been trying to figure out ways to expand upon it and make the world a better place because it was really through the collective mm. efforts that we're going to change things. And it's it's super, I mean, I'm shocked. And I think I'm shocked too, because when I got started 20 something years ago, and I would talk about these things, people would literally look at me like I was a total nutcase. I mean, I cannot tell you how often mm. that happened for a solid 10 to 12 years. Wow. How you did know? you keep going? Just, like, how did you per, like perceive it? Because that's quite tough to overcome. I focused on taking care of the women in my practice. Mm. And it's easy to keep the negative conversation in perspective when you are every single day changing an individual person's health and life mm. for the better. Mm. But I also don't forget how hard that it was. And I remember the first moment that I thought, wow, I've 
participated in shifting this narrative was when they was both well and good and mind, body, green. I think it was 2016 and 2017. There were like two years where the mainstreaming of menstruation was like a wellness trend. And I was like, and I just kept looking around like, is anybody noticing the historic feminist situation that is happening right now? Because this Mm. is unprecedented. That was very encouraging. So I think the struggle has been enormous, but the what, the historic nature of what is shifting when it does shift is so nourishing Mm. that I'm just really good at holding out for hope. Is it, is it Huxley that said there's nothing that can stop an idea whose time has come? And this idea of acknowledging that we have a cyclical reality and acknowledging that it needs a different form of self-care is an idea of whose time has come. And I've been behind this idea for a long time and have no one's been paying attention to it. And now all of a sudden we're all talking about it and it's great. It's mm-hmm. just great because that's how change happens. It sort of happens slowly and then all at once. And it's exciting because it means that everything has to change from the way that we talk about health, the way that we market, the way that we educate, the way that we research. It, it will force better outcomes. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'll love Alisa's books, Woman Code and In the Flow. And if cycle syncing is something that you want to give a try, then definitely check out the Flow Living app. And as Alisa mentioned on the podcast, they recently added more recipes and workouts tailored for different phases of the cycle, which is pretty cool. And I'll include all the links in the show notes for you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to Mother Podcast on the podcast app of your choice, and we'll be dropping new episodes every week.